It's always good to be with you to worship God around the study of his word. As a local church, this is a unique opportunity, and it's not lost on me how beautiful it is to be here as a congregation singing and praying and studying God's word. And I'm thankful for the opportunity. And it's not an accident this morning that we're studying this particular passage on this particular week, given current world events that Ryan talked about and we prayed for in Ukraine. We're simply going to continue where we left off, so it's not topical preaching. We're just walking through the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 21 this morning. But it's not surprising that this is going to talk specifically about things in this world that are certain to come. Jesus places heavy emphasis in this particular passage on future events. He speaks prophecy to his disciples about things that are absolutely going to occur in this world. Uh, but before we dive in, I'd like to start with a question for all of us to consider this morning. A question for every single one of us. How often do you think about the future? How often do you sit and contemplate what's going to happen in your life? Uh, for some of you, you're already thinking about lunch, and that's fine. You're thinking about this afternoon, you got plans for lunch, and that's exciting. Or if you're like Molly and I in our household, we often think about the next week. we got a calendar. We're constantly thinking about all the things we have to get done this coming week to keep the wheels from coming off the tracks in our house. Some of you are planners. You're thinking about next year, maybe an upcoming wedding or a vacation or receiving a new child in your home. On the other side of the spectrum, some of you are dealing with a, a recent diagnosis, cancer diagnosis, and you're thinking about what, what is this year going to look like? Or you've said goodbye to a loved one. <laughs> How is life going to be normal with a, the loss of a loved one? We, we tend to think about the future quite a bit, most of us at least. And to be clear up front in this passage, in this message this morning, it's not a bad thing. The Bible doesn't condemn thinking about the future. In fact, it's responsible. We need to think about the future and plan accordingly. It can be a very, very good thing. But as it relates to this tendency in our lives, I think we can all agree that what we expect or desire in the future has a tremendous impact in our life today, right now, right? Our hope, our dreams, our aspirations for the future, where we see ourselves next week or next year, has an immediate impact on what we do with our lives right now, today. The first time I can remember experiencing this in my own life, this reality, was in high school. Uh, my freshman year in high school, I decided I wanted to go to the Naval Academy for college. I had an uncle who was a pilot in the Navy. I saw the movie Top Gun. I figured that was the best way to get a leather jacket, a motorcycle, and to fly jets. So I was all in. So that desire for my future radically shaped the high school student. I was a terrible middle school student. But in high school, that future reality, at least in my mind, set the tone for my four years. My daily decisions were driven by that hope, that expectation in the future. But what if our vision for the future doesn't happen like we expect? If it doesn't unfold how we plan, it can be devastating, right? Have you ever experienced that? Like you had these deep desires for the future, this picture in your mind of what things would look like, and it didn't happen that way. I can remember my senior year, I worked hard, but I was an average student. I was a good athlete, but not a great athlete. But in January of 1996, I got the letter from the Naval Academy Admissions Department. So excited. I opened up the letter. Dear Mr. Woodruff, I'm sorry to inform you, you have not been selected to attend the Naval Academy. It's devastated. I mean, whew. I had no plan B, no other college applications, no money for college. I was crushed. I remember taking the letter to the hill behind my house. And I just crying, like, God, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I, I, was, I was literally hopeless. Have you ever felt that way in life? Have you ever been hopeless? Like, God, what do I do? 
our passage of Scripture this morning is about the future, about what we can expect to happen. But ultimately, this passage, so if you hear now, this passage in Luke chapter 21 is about hope, not what we would like to see happen or what we, we desire to happen, like the Naval Academy, because our hope in this world and our stuff, it's fleeting. This passage on hope is not about what might be or what could be. It's about what will be. It's absolute certainty, unshakable hope. This will happen. Why? Because God said it. God said it. So I want you to hear that loud and clear. Luke chapter 21 is about unshakable hope for all of us who are in Christ. And I want to ask the question, where do you put your hope? Where do you put the ultimate hope in your life? And how does that shape things for you right now, today? Not years from now, today. My hope, my desire is that God's word this morning will prompt all of us to reflect on that question. Where do I put my hope and how does that shape my life right now? So if you have a Bible this morning, I ask you to open up to Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. If you don't have one, feel free to share with the neighbor. I'm going to read it out loud. Um, Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. It's 34 verses of scripture. We're not going to read all of them out loud together this morning. But this teaching is a little bit different than what we've seen over the last few weeks. As we look at the last week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth before his crucifixion and resurrection. Typically, what we've seen is Jesus is teaching in the temple to religious leaders. He's interacting with them, even rebuking them. We saw this last week when Pastor Vic talked about the resurrection and Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees on this particular topic. But this passage, Luke chapter 21, is a little bit different. Jesus is talking primarily to his disciples. And most of this interaction happens on the Mount of Olives, also known as the Mount called Olivet. And for that reason, this Teaching is known as the Olivet Discourse. There's a parallel accounts of this in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. And so what I'd like to do, rather than read the whole thing, is we're going to read verses 5 through 18 this morning. So as is the tradition of our church, would you just stand where you're at right now? And I'd ask you to follow along, and I'm going to read Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 18. And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be one left here, where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Verse 10. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, I can have a seat. 
So I just said this passage is about hope, but that didn't sound very hopeful. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquake, famine, pestilence, persecution, even death. But stick with me. This passage is absolutely about hope. What is the context here? For those who weren't with us last week who have a short memory like mine, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And after he concludes an afternoon session of teaching, he leaves the temple with his disciples. And as he's walking out, you know, their routine was to go out of the temple, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives where they would spend the night. And as they're leaving the temple, one of his disciples makes this observation. And here, read with me in verse 5. And this is a generic observation, but Mark chapter 13 gives us more clarity. And Luke, it says, and while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, if you look at Mark chapter 13, verse 1, it actually says one of his disciples turns to Jesus as they're leaving. He says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Like, Jesus, this temple's amazing, is essentially what he says to Jesus. And like so often, we've noticed with Jesus' response, what he says is unexpected. What does Jesus say in verse 6? As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciple says to Jesus, with maybe a hint of excitement, enthusiasm, maybe even some pride in the temple, like, Jesus, this is amazing. And Jesus says, it's not going to last. And so you can imagine that disciple might have been a little deflated. Like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And so he asks the next, he, he asks the next obvious question, well, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs that this terrible thing is going to happen? And again, Jesus' response is not what we would expect. It's not what the, he doesn't directly answer the question. All right, look with me here in verse 7, or correction, verse 8. He says to them, see that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. The disciple comments on the beauty of the temple, and Jesus says, it's not going to last. And people will come in my name claiming to be me. Don't follow them. What's the takeaway here from these first couple of verses in this chapter? This first teaching and the the Olivet Discourse. It's pretty clear. Jesus says, don't set your heart on the things of this world or the people of this world. That's the first teaching in this passage. Jesus clearly tells his disciples, don't set your heart, your hope, on the things of this world, the possessions of this world, or the people of this world. I was looking at... Um, a diagram of the temple. I've never been to Israel. I took a, a tour on Google Earth this last week. <laughs> but one first century historian named Josephus describes the temple and its beauty, its grandeur. Uh, one marble stone at the temple was as big as 60 feet long. I think it was 12 feet high and 18 feet wide, the size of a school bus. Just, just one stone block at the temple. So it seems like a reasonable observation. And Jesus reminds him, no matter how beautiful this world is and the things of this world, don't set your heart on them. And no matter how dynamic or intelligent or convincing people are who tell you things about life that are not of God, don't listen to them. Don't set your heart on the things of this world and the people of this world who don't speak about God and his purposes for your life. That's the first teaching here in the Olivet Discourse. But he doesn't stop there. So Jesus continues here. And this can be a little confusing. If you've read this before, he bounces between near prophecy and far prophecy. He talks about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he talks about things that come in that day, that last day when Jesus comes again. 
And let's read what he says here, beginning in verse, you know, actually what I'd like to do, let's talk about the near prophecy first. So look at with me in verse 12. He tells his listeners this, but before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Does that sound familiar? If you've read through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 4, one of the first things that happens to the disciples, Peter, James, and John, is what? They're preaching the gospel in the temple, and they're arrested by the religious leaders and called to give an account. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, and it says Peter is what? Filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he gives this incredible sermon, to the bold, confident, accurate sermon about Jesus Christ and who he is and how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Like, that's near prophecy. Jesus tells them this is going to happen, and it happens. That's not the only case. Acts chapter 7. If you know Acts chapter 7, it's Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He gives this beautiful account of the gospel and how it's tied to the Old Testament. Testament. Even as he's being stoned to death, he, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and with boldness he proclaims the gospel. Later on, even though Paul wasn't here, he had a firsthand interaction with Christ. In Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul, standing before King Agrippa, or, or King Herod and Festus, he does the same thing. He's standing before governors and kings and he gives an account of the gospel and who Christ is. Jesus says this is going to happen, and it happens. It's, it's fulfilled prophecy. But also here, he talks about some other things that didn't happen between. So realistically, Jesus likely gave this instruction about AD 33, plus or minus a couple years, AD 33. The gospel of Luke was probably written in the mid-60s, the destruction of the Jerusalem or the temple in 70 AD. So all these things that he describes initially likely didn't happen in their context. And what I mean by that is wars, rumors of wars, earthquake, pestilences, famines. He's speaking here about a far prophecy, things that are going to take place before that day. So the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is a type, it's a foreshadowing of what's to come in the future on that day when Jesus comes back again. And so oftentimes people, even today, like to speculate. And it's hard not to. As I, as I made a list of all these far prophecies, even in my short lifetime of 43 years that have come to pass, wars and rumors of wars. I mean, in my 43 years, I, I've, I've seen, served in Iraq and Afghanistan in wars. And those are just wars that we've been involved. The Persian Gulf before I was in the service. Earthquakes. I can remember Haiti in 2010. The 7.0 magnitude earthquake killed 260,000 people. Tens of thousands of buildings were destroyed in that earthquake. Famines. In high school, I can remember the famine that happened in Somalia. Devastating. Hundreds of thousands of people died in our lifetime. And, these, and it's just, it's lining up here. And pestilence. Another translation is pandemic. God, pandemics. I just can't help but think, my goodness. Like it's, it's all lining up in persecution. Maybe not here and now in our context, but absolutely persecution is unfortunately alive and well across the world. He's speaking about this far prophecy as signs for the end, that the end is coming. These are awful realities about the world we live in, and they cause panic and fear because of tragedy. We don't long for these things to happen. I don't long for any of these things to happen. We pray against them, but we know that they're certain to happen. Jesus said these will happen. But when they do happen, here's what I want you to hear, that our perspective as Christians has to be different. 
Your perspective on the tragedy and struggle in this world has to be different than the world. And he says it here. This will be your witness. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So as succinctly as I could think of it, what should our perspective be when we see wars and rumors of wars and earthquake, famine, pestilence, persecution, and death? As Christians, we are called to do this, to faithfully endure the struggles of this world and see them as our opportunity to bear witness. Think about that for a moment. Like rather than pull back and isolate and promote division and speculation and just wait for that day to happen, Jesus is calling you to see that this moment in this world right now, all the struggles and turmoil and uncertainty is our opportunity to bear witness to the world around us about eternal lasting hope that cannot be found apart from Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Actually, I'd like to draw your attention to verse 18 and 19 because I don't want to skip over verses that could be potentially confusing. Verse 18 in chapter 21 says, but not a hair on your head will perish. Is that a little confusing? He just said in verse 16, some of you are going to die. And then he says, not a hair on your head will perish. Just think for a moment to that familiar verse that most of us know, or many of us might know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is speaking with eternity in mind here. Like, you will not perish in eternity if you live according to his word and put your hope in the risen son, Jesus Christ. What about the next verse? He says in verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. He just said we're going to be persecuted and die, and if we endure, how do we gain our lives? One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 35, and there's a parallel account in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses or forfeits its soul? What does Jesus say? By your faithful endurance to live out the, the life that God has called you to live with eternity in mind and your hope firmly fixed on Jesus Christ, you will gain life in this world in a way that doesn't make sense to everybody else. Life, purposeful, lasting, everlasting life is found through faithful endurance to God's word. That's what he's telling his disciples here. So let's continue in verse lost my place. Uh, verses 20 through 33. And so here we see this, this bounce between near prophecy and far prophecy. Verses 20 through 24. And I'll read them right now. So Luke 21, verse 20 through 24. This is near prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and know that its desolation has come near, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the, upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This happened. Jesus spoke it, and it happened in 70 A.D., and Pastor Vic spoke on this recently, the, the Jewish revolt, 68 to 72. In 70 AD, the city was destroyed, the temple was burned, and people suffered terribly. Jesus spoke it, and it happened. That's significant. That points to someone who is all-knowing, and he spoke it with specificity. 
Again, as, as you contemplate, for those who may not be Christians, like, who is Jesus? He's someone who knew that would happen and spoke it boldly, and it came to pass. He never said anything that didn't happen, or that won't, will happen someday, that won't happen someday. But then he transitions back. So that's near prophecy in a way that the disciples would be a little confused. Again, this is a massive temple. Nobody expected it to be burned in 30 years, but it, it happened. And then Jesus shifts gears again in verse 25 to this long-term prophecy that we look forward to someday. So look with me in verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth to stress of the nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and when they see the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, Raise your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. That's a powerful passage. So this is far prophecy, and it's speaking specifically about unexplainable, supernatural, supernatural, terrifying things that are going to happen that we just can't explain. And the reaction of the world is what? Fear. Fearful foreboding, I think it says. I had to look that word up. For, foreboding. Fearful apprehension. Think absolute panic. When I can remember when COVID-19 first sort of took off here in Stafford, it seemed like absolute panic was gripping people as they went to Walmart to get as much toilet paper as they could. Like, could you imagine when the sun and the moon and the stars start just falling from the sky? It'll be pandemonium. That will be the reaction of the world. What does Jesus call us to do? That was fascinating language in, in, in verse 28. Straighten up. Raise your heads for your redemption is drawing near. What are we called to do in the midst of that? We're not called to panic. These things will happen. We shouldn't be surprised. We don't long for tragedy, but we should expect them to happen and raise our heads, straighten up. Your redemption for those in Christ is near. I was in the airport this last week on a trip to San Diego, and I, I am confident Jesus didn't intend this specifically for what I saw, but I couldn't help but notice the number of people in the airport and at restaurants that were just hunched over. Heads down, buried in their phone, just soaking up the latest news feed and social media, YouTube videos, and just filling their mind with all sorts of stuff that have nothing to do with the hope we have in Jesus Christ. I don't know for some of them could have been on a Bible app. I don't know that for sure. <laughs> but I'm speculating. But by and large, just, just physically hunched over. And I thought, man, how beautiful would it be if people just straightened up? You raise your head and fix your mind and heart on things that are above in a Colossians chapter 3 kind of way. That's what Jesus is calling us to do in this moment, in this world. Because these things are going to happen. And then he continues, and he gives an analogy of, of how these things might take place. And he compares what's going to happen in the world to the blossoming of a fig tree. Let's read it together. In verse 29, tells him a parable. It says, look at the fig tree and all the trees, and as soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There will be obvious signs that we will see that will tell us, like, this is going to happen. Let's talk about the first thing here that's a little bit confusing. He says this generation is not going to pass away. Again, he didn't literally mean that generation. When Jesus spoke these words, it had been 30 years roughly until uh, Luke wrote them down. Some of that generation had already died. 
And there's some debate about exactly what this means. I would offer up a couple options. When he says this generation will not pass away, he could be talking about simply this sinful generation, this generation of humanity that we are a part of in a fallen world. It will not completely pass away until the Son of Man returns. Or it could mean that the generation that sees the fullness of all these signs will not pass away until it occurs. But what I really want to draw your attention to is that last part. What does he say there at the end? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my, earth, my words will not. The word of God is eternal. It's everlasting. When you think about hope and what you can put your hope in, you can put your hope in God's word. It's, it's not going to fade or perish. That's what the Bible teaches. I can remember... In school, I believe it's Karl Marx, I should have looked it up, but he said, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. I, I have to chuckle. Karl Marx is dead. Jesus Christ is alive. You decide who you're going to follow. Like, we believe in a living hope. Christ is alive, and his word is true. That's what this book teaches. So what do we do with all this? How should we respond to the, the, all that discourse and all this that Jesus has talked about? Let's finish up here in this last section. In verses 34 through 36. But watch for yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This passage, the Olivet Discourse, ends with Jesus emphasizing a day, that day, the return of the Son of Man, a title he used for himself and linked to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That day when Jesus will come again, it's going to happen. Jesus will physically return to the earth. That's what the Bible teaches in a mysterious and powerful way. And he emphasizes, be ready for that day. How will the world respond to all these things that I've described? These supernatural, unexplainable terrors and wars and famines and earthquakes. How will the world, how does the world respond? Talks about it here. Drunkenness, dissipation, bury yourself in the cares of this life. I had to look up the word dissipation. It simply means what happens after you get drunk, oftentimes carousing. What does the world do? We, we numb ourselves apart from Christ. So we don't have to think about reality or we just bury ourselves in the cares of this world with no thought to what's going to happen down the road. But what does Jesus call us to do? How is it that we should respond in these moments? We are not called to simply escape the realities of this world through self-medication, through distraction and sin. Instead, we're called to engage the world in these moments with the hope of the gospel. That's what our commission is. This is our opportunity. This is our platform. Hearts are soft to the gospel in moments of desperation. I, I wonder if you've experienced that. I know many of you have worked in law enforcement or maybe been in the military, and you've been in situations, dire circumstances. Life and death is on the line. I can remember I was in Afghanistan a, a while back. I'm getting old. And I, the context that I was in was uh, dynamic. We, we had lost Marines. We had Marines grievously injured. And every day we went out on patrol, there was a good chance there would, something was going to happen. It was amazing to me how many Christians emerged from this group of guys who wanted nothing to do with Christ before the deployment. One of our first patrols, I offered another uh, sergeant that was with me, Sergeant Gronsky, who loved Jesus. We just offered to pray with the guys. Very quickly, that 
prayer group grew to be, include everybody. Like everybody's like, hey, you forgot to pray. Let's bring it in. We need to pray. In moments of desperation, people's hearts are soft to the God. People are far from Jesus, are willing to listen to you, to pray with you. So how do we respond to this? Jesus is saying, like, don't distract yourself with drunkenness and dissipation and bury yourself in the, the latest news feed. Re- straighten up, raise your head, recognize this is our opportunity to bear witness and look for opportunities with the people around you who are just scratching for hope because their world is falling apart. All right, what are some key observations we can make from the Olivet Discourse? And I didn't cover everything. It's hard to do, cover 34 verses in 35 minutes, but... What are some key observations that we, we can pull from this at a minimum? No matter what comes in this world, no matter what comes at you in this world, don't be distracted by stuff. Don't be led away by false teaching. Don't be terrified when you see this world in turmoil. Don't be terrified. Why? Because if you are in Christ, this passage says that you will not perish, you will be redeemed, and you will gain your life. How is this possible? How is that possible? This passage says because God's word will not pass away. It's not going to pass away. And Jesus Christ will come again. Will come again. He's coming back. And so in light of these truths, what does this passage call us to do? To faithfully endure. To faithfully endure whatever comes in this broken world. And to recognize that in dire circumstances, these are our opportunities to bear witness in word and deed to bear witness in word and deed to what Christ has done, what he is doing, and what he will do someday. These are opportunities for Christians here this morning. Remember where your ultimate hope is. This morning, take a breath. Where is your ultimate hope? Not just for tomorrow or next week or next year, 10 billion years from now. Where is your hope? And let that radically transform how you live today with purpose, for things that matter. That Sitting on that hill behind my house in tears over the Naval Academy letter. I remember it vividly. It was a turning point in my life and my walk with Christ. After I was done crying all over myself, I just sat and prayed for a little bit as an 18-year-old kid. And it was very clear to me that God was calling me to surrender my life, surrender my best laid plans to his purposes, whatever that looked like. And I did at that moment. On my knees, in tears, on a, I just said, God, whatever you want me to be, like, I'm all yours. And I just want to encourage you this morning, like, surrender your best laid plans to whatever God has for you and be all in, because it's better than anything else you could plan for your life. Stay awake, Christians. Stay alert. Pray for strength that you can stand before the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, when he returns, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. For those of you who don't know true and lasting hope this morning, let me just implore you to put your hope in Christ today. On the plane this last week when I was flying out to San Diego, I met a man. I was trying to prep for the sermon. He's reading what I was doing, which is fine. And he strikes up a conversation about Jesus. It's like, great. I, I struggled to make conversation about Jesus on the airplane, so I was like, that's great. And... Uh, he really just wants to share what he thinks about it all, and that's wonderful. So I listened to him, and he shares his story. He was a graduate student in aerospace engineering. He was, wanted to be a rocket scientist. We had very little in common. I'm a big, dumb animal. And so I'm just listening to him use big words. <laughs> and so he was very articulate, very intelligent. He was well-read. He was quoting books, and I was like, oh, yeah, I've never read that book. And, uh, 
<laughs> and so finally, I, I had a chance to ask a question. And after each, it was obvious he, he knew a lot more than me about a lot of things. And I said, where do you put your hope? Where, where's your hope in this life? And his answer was interesting. He says, I believe in the power of me and my ability to accomplish the impossible. That sounds inspiring, but ultimately that is an empty and a doomed philosophy. It won't last. Only God can do the impossible. Only Jesus Christ can bring you from death to life and give you a hope that will not perish. If you don't know Jesus, put your hope in him today. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. We thank you for your word in an unshakable, certain hope that we have no matter what comes at us in this world, that we will be redeemed, that we will be with you forever. Help us to make the most of this short time on earth, to see even the hardest times as opportunities to bear witness and to live with purpose. I pray for each person here, whatever struggle they're going through, a difficulty, even despair, that you would fill them with hope this morning, hope in the risen Christ, hope in 10 billion years from now, we love you and we praise your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.